Welcome to Get Down to College Business. We will identify strategies that could make the difference between keeping university doors open and closing them for good. I'm pulling in business experts and higher ed leaders to debate the merits of strategies that could save the future of higher ed. I'm your host, Sarah Holton, PhD. Let's get down to college business. Hi, everyone. This is Sarah Holton and your host. I'm joined today by John Dugan, the Chief Operating Officer of the Concord Group. The Concord Group is headquartered in Chicago with six other offices in the U.S. They provide many value-add and cost-saving construction services to owners. And their services include things like project management, budgeting, scheduling, risk management, sustainability, commissioning, quality assurance, and accountability. And the Concord Group has worked with some significant higher ed projects around the country. John, welcome. Good morning, Sarah. Pleasure to be back. Yes, and you are my first repeat guest. So this is very exciting for the both of us. A few months ago, John, you were on this podcast and you discussed creative funding strategies to bring financing to the table for higher ed institutions. Listeners, if you haven't heard that episode, it was released on August 1st, 2023, and it shares some fresh ideas on how to monetize existing assets. There were some super compelling solutions for colleges looking to bring in cash. Today, John is here to walk us through the good, the bad, and the ugly of older buildings. Most, if not all, brick-and-mortar campuses have older buildings, especially with our historical records. And so the question on the table today is, should we keep them or should we raise them? And so John's going to walk us through that. Let's start with the basic dilemma most college leaders face. Do you keep that old building because it has historical significance, we're emotionally attached to it, or do we spend the money on a new shiny one? We might think that we'll save money renovating an old building, but will we in the long run? And then, of course, the counterposition is that we might think a new building will catapult student success, but will it? John, walk us through the high-level points to consider when college leaders are faced with this dilemma. Save the old or build new? Yeah, thank you, Sarah. It's a great question. I think what all college institutions need to understand is, you know, they need to understand what their assets are and start looking at their facilities as if they are assets. The age-old question of do I tear down and build renew or do I renovate really comes into what is the current state of your building. There are other considerations such as, you know, historic uh, nature of buildings and also uh, emotional attachments to buildings. But if we put those things aside, it's really a case of how functional is that building in its current use? If we are to create an adaptive reuse of it, can we do that efficiently? And also, what is our deferred maintenance on those buildings to come up with that kind of, you know, not emotional response to it, but a practical and and factual response to should I renovate or tear down? You mentioned that college leaders need to start looking at buildings as assets. Do you find that some of the clients that you worked with don't even know how to properly value or set the monetary asset number for these buildings? Is that something you find them struggling to even pin down? I think it's a struggle. I don't necessarily think that they don't understand it, but, you know, put yourself in their shoes. You know, they've just expended millions, maybe hundreds of millions of dollars on a new, brand new facility. For them to contemplate now, the deferred maintenance starts day one. I have to start putting money aside, let alone now I have a new facility that I need to operate. So my operation budget is going to increase. I mean, within the asset, there are useful lights for everything from f- furniture, fixtures, equipment, carpeting, 
a wall paint down to roofs and structure. So some of they will have a useful life asset from three to 50 years. So, and depending on how the building is designed, depending on what those factors are. So, and what a lot of owners do struggle with is putting that deferred maintenance plan in place and being strict with it to make sure that we are actually adhering to that plan. So you also mentioned this idea that sometimes we preserve buildings for that emotional attachment. Maybe it's a centerpiece that comes with a lot of history. I know there's plenty of institutions out there that are more than 100 years old, and so are their buildings. When you come in and help a client determine you know, the, where the emotion needs to end, where's that line for you? Because you don't want to keep a building if it's really just a deferred maintenance cost suck, right? So what's that line? Where do we find that boundary or that line of we should keep it because it means so much emotionally versus we're just putting money. It's just becoming a money pit. Yeah. Well, there there is that emotional attachment. Sometimes these buildings can be on the historic register. So it's very, very difficult to get approval to raise them. But all that aside, a simple rule of thumb is, is if to bring this building up to modern day standards cost me 50% more than what it would cost to build a new building, we should consider building a new building. All right. So if a school spends tens of millions on a new building or more, what's the going rate right now? You don't get a lot for tens of millions anymore. (laughs) I've heard this before in this podcast and I find it so sad. Scott Linvall told me I could get basically paint and carpet for a few million dollars. So what's the going rate for a new building? There are multiple questions to that question because it depends on the function. I mean, if you're talking, you know, science lab buildings, it could be, you know, significant hundreds of dollars per square foot. If you're talking more of a a dorm building, it could be, you know, 150 to 250 bucks a square foot, depending on the life cycle of the building. At least a tens of millions, if not more. Okay, so we're talking at least tens of millions. So a college says, we're going to go ahead, we're going to build this new building. They want to then see the ROI. They want students, faculty, staff to be thriving in that space because they put so much money out there. So if we don't tie these buildings to student success, to me, it seems kind of wasteful. It seems like, what's the point? Then you just have a new building and it, again, deferred maintenance day one. Have you seen certain types of new buildings go underutilized or fall short of expectations? And I'm really just asking, what's the ROI of a new building? Yeah, the ROI of a new building would be additional revenue. You know, is the campus, is the institution looking to put a new program in, maybe a new type of school? Or are they looking to it to, to attract better educators or to broaden the, the depth of students that, that, that they might attract? So that has an ROI there because there's a revenue to it. But then it's also old buildings can be energy hogs. It, they can be difficult to operate. Some of the systems might be old and it might not be cost productive to update the systems. With being, you know, mechanical, electrical systems and even their external envelope of, you know, maybe they've just got single pane windows. So from that standpoint, that should be factored into the ROI as well. The other factor that should be is the deferred maintenance. Depending on the age of the building and what the historical upkeep has been, there could be a significant cost to improve that building just from a, an upgrade standpoint, uh, as opposed to building a new building where you, you Remember, I just said you have a deferred maintenance day one, but that's a lot lower cost than coming in at year 30 or year 50 and not necessarily starting from scratch, but inheriting those costs, which are t- tend to be the bigger costs. The other part of renovating existing buildings is even if you do something as simple as renovating a bathroom, 
there are significant knock-on effects that could happen to that because you now may have opened up the the necessity to upgrade the whole building by code or at least the path of egress from that particular uh, renovation and that could be anything from you know ADA it could be life safety codes there could be numerous codes that do that so a lot of the time that's where uh, owners kind of fall short they think oh it's a simple bathroom upgrade this might cost me you know fifteen twenty thousand dollars but all of a sudden it's 10 20 times that because of all the code upgrades that they have to now you know include to bring the building up to code Right. And that I think even homeowners can relate to that, right? Yep. I was going to do my bathroom on the in the lower level area. So I have that third bathroom. And then I realized everything had to be fixed. And suddenly I, I can't stop. Once you're in the process, right. you just have to push that out. How much can we quantify? How much does it cost to maintain an older building? And this goes back to your deferred maintenance. So if you could dive down in that, I mean, is there a percentage that we can shoot for to budget for each year, you know, the deferred maintenance on every single building. If you start off with a new building, it's pretty straightforward because you can separate the individual assets within the overall assets to their useful life. So for example, if you're carpeting throughout the building, it has a three to five uh, year useful life, then the cost to replace that carpet or particularly in the common areas, you might want to then scale that over a three to five year period. Year 30, you might want to look at putting some money aside to redo the roof, your mechanical systems and that type of thing. Again, looking at that useful life where you can project that out reasonably. Now, if you maintain those assets on on a regular basis, you know, an asset that may have a useful life of 30 years could then get extended to 40 to 50 years, depending on how you maintain it. No different to your own car. If you don't maintain it, it's not going to last as long as if you do maintain it. But then from an existing asset standpoint, if you haven't been doing that, then you really need to look at doing a full detailed facility condition assessment to really understand what the state of that asset is, what it's going to be to upgrade it either from a from an ADA or a code standpoint, or even just bring it up to grade where it isn't a fuel hog, you know, an energy hog, or even when you're considering, do I renovate this because... I want to change this building into a new science building or we need more student housing. So would this building be able to do that? You really need to understand what that deferred maintenance is as a baseline before you even get into renovate or raise a new. So there's a lot of planning. You need someone who's on top of this and knows just, you know, how many dollars and cents to attribute to each of these. You talked about the different aspects of deferred maintenance and things that you might want to upgrade Tell us about the most expensive fixes. When you go into an older building and you want to do some remodels, you mentioned ADA, you mentioned energy. I'm thinking about technology too. Tell me the most expensive. Which ones come with the highest price tag? The things that come with the highest price tag that rip out the soul in people because there really is no, there's no good RAI. It just has to happen is abatement. Yeah, no, here's what you got for your several million dollars. So you start at ground zero. That is so unsatisfying. Yeah, and then all of a sudden it's, you know, this is the price just to abate the building to even start either raising or renovating. So that's that's really, that's always really a a big pill to swallow if it's of a building of, of that kind of age. And it's, it could be, you know, pipe insulation, it can be ceiling tile, it can be flooring tile. So it's very, very extensive. And once you kind of start, you, re- you really can't stop, uh, particularly when you're in 
you know, if it's your own house, you can kind of lock the door and say no one's going in there. But if it's but if it's in a common area where where the public are coming in every day, you really have to you know be be a good citizen and make sure that, that you clean everything up. Of course, right. It's the right thing to do. It's just not cosmetically pleasing. No. Right, and it's so much money, right? So you mentioned that that comes with the highest price tag, the least visual ROI. I don't think it's the most the highest price tag okay. but it's always the bitterest swill to pollow okay. s- pill to swallow sorry because you don't get any visual uh, benefit from that but you know you have to do it and i'm imagining that students of all things you know they want you know new dorm rooms and maybe upgraded classroom facilities and their parents want that too faculty want that better research labs and instead we had to spend all this money on something like Abatement. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. Let's walk further along that line of abatement and other environmental hazards. What are the other environmental hazards that you've seen in older buildings? Again, it can that's really the main one. It can it can also depend on, you know, how old they are, what their fuel source was or backup fuel source. You know, from time to time with with very old buildings, they've had, you know, diesel generators or oil generators. And they may have had some spills or overflows in the past. So you have to get environmental reports for that. That then leads to, you know, excavation of that material, which has to get sent to a different landfill. That can be an additional cost as well. So I think those are definitely the main ones from the environmental standpoint. Outside of, you know, what we're all seeing now and we're all more conscious is, is just the better sustainability, better efficiency with, you know, better improved systems that reduce our kind of energy bill, bill bills and make the make newer buildings or renovations of, of older buildings just more efficient. Is there a typical lifespan for a building? 50 years, 30 years? What What's your estimation on that? Yeah, again, it comes down to what the owner's looking for. There can be 30-year buildings, 50-year buildings, 100-year buildings. So we always go into it, whether it's a renovation or a new building, and says, what is the goal of this? Typically, the minimum is 30 years because the building has to outlast the life of the the banknote, which is typically a 30-year mortgage, for want of a better phrase. But then, you know, once you get that, then you're designing the building to that. Typically, your shell and core, which is your foundations, your structure, the core of the building, those are typically designed to a 50-year useful life life, uh, asset group. But then as you go into the different uh, building systems, you know, mechanical, electrical, that can be more of a 20-year life. Drywall, doors, ceilings, carpet, you know, anywhere from three then to 15 years because typically the cycle is is that, you know, these spaces will get renovated over a 10 to 15-year period. So, and that's how the useful life is, is generally classified. Have you noticed a progression of decline in buildings? Like what are the first things that typically go, the second things, what lasts the longest? I think it all depends on the maintenance and then some of the design. If you think of mechanical systems, you know, sometimes these are basically rooftop units. So they then have a less useful life if they're enclosed actually in the building or in a penthouse on on the roof. Because if they're just a rooftop unit, they're exposed to the natural elements. So here it's 95 degree days and 80% humidity down to, you know, minus 40 in, in the winter with a polar vortex. And so that's just extreme environmental conditions that can impact the useful life of those assets. So harsher climates are going to wear those mechanical systems faster. Yes. All right. That makes sense. I mean, that's true with cars too. Okay. So, so for example, we're working on a project in Florida where it's very, you know, conducive to salt water. So our client there has a mandate, 
all of their mechanical systems are enclosed because the salt water expedites the downfall of, of those assets. It reduces the useful life of the assets because it's exposed to that type of element. What do you think are the best uses for older buildings? If someone were going to have the John Dugan College <laughs> and College of Money, we'll call it College of Money and Finance and Economics, because you got to have a lot of words, we'll give it an acronym that no one can remember. What would you use for your older buildings? What would you put in your older buildings that makes the most sense to you? Well, with that intro, it's obviously very hypothetical. That <laughs> can't see that ever happening. But yeah, I think it, you, you just need to analyze what that building is. Sometimes, depending on the age of it, depending on the way it was built, you know, a building that's maybe, you know, 60, 80 years old, that may not be conducive to renovating it into a modern day lab building. Reasons because just building column spans, uh, floor to ceiling height is a big thing because of the mechanical systems that have to go in. If we can't fit that above, between the ceiling tile and below wall elevation, then we're going to lose a lot of usable space because that has to go on uh, the square footage somewhere. So that seems to be a difficult one. Then we see it in our general day-to-day life. If you walk down any kind of you know inner city area, we're, we're converting old buildings into housing. So the easy one always seems to be is we can convert a building into student housing. I mean, we're even seeing churches being being converted in, in, into apartment buildings. The other things we see as well is that exterior buildings can get recladded to give them, you know, a, a reappearance. And even sometimes it's a case of, you know, particularly buildings that may have been built in the late 60s, 70s that aren't that appealing, we can give them a, a fresh face by upgrading their entryway you know, making making the building look like replacing the windows, knocking the windows out, making them larger, just to give the building a kind of refresh and more air, more more elevation to, to them. Yeah, more curb appeal. Yes. yes, and you're right. Those institutional buildings of the 60s and 70s, I'm sure they were very functional at the time, but you're right. They're just ugly. Yes. And amenities and facilities attract students and their parents. Parents don't want to drop their kids off at a dorm that's lousy, yes. right? Dank, moldy-ish, gonna smells bad, just doesn't have that appeal because it's their home for their children for the next foreseeable future. And so, yes, you wanted to have some curb appeal. So the exterior is, of course, important. But I think of some of those really older buildings, those 100-year-old buildings, some of the times that's the prettiest part of a building is the exterior. Yes. Those all brick, big windows, maybe a beautiful entryway, a lot of marble floors. So those are really nice. But then you get inside and they are very blah. Right. <laughs> Chopped up. The floor plan is you know, classroom or office, classroom or office. All right. So have you ever worked with clients who wanted to tear down an older building, but they got resistance? And I don't mean the historically preserved buildings. That's a different ball of wax. But just by the communities, the neighbors who said, please don't tear down this building. It's been a part of this community for decades and decades. We just can't emotionally or sentimentally let it go. Has that ever happened to you? Yeah, not just in education, but also, you know, with municipalities, with healthcare. Yeah, I mean, these buildings are fabrics of the communities, you know, children are born there, civic centres where big events have happened, and then college campuses where that was where I graduated, my daughter graduated there, I think my granddaughter's going to graduate there. So you get these tears of emotions over generations. But I think with anything like that, you have to kind of understand, get the understanding from what the stakeholders are. 
But at the end of the day, if you run out of options about an adaptive reuse of that building, you know, you have to still take the practical option because if that building, if that assets is becoming inefficient and it's becoming an issue, eventually it turns from an asset to a liability. And it may be that building on a college campus is at the fulcrum of the uh, the college. And when we do a master plan, either that be- remains the, the, the center fulcrum or it has to change. So time changes things, uh, but it really is about getting community engagement, getting their their feedback, try to take that in, into place. But, you know, eventually um, we have to cater to the future. We have to cater to the environment. We have to cater to uh, future students because that's the business you're in of educating the future of tomorrow. I'm thinking especially about more urban colleges, yeah. right, where they are definitely, as you mentioned, a, a part of the fabric of the community. And I'm also hearing you talk a bit about maybe pulling in those community stakeholders, maybe before all the decisions have been made, knowing what the college's goals are, but also recognizing that this is really important to other people. It's not just about the college, but it's about the whole community. Yeah, and I think sometimes with that as well, you know, going back to a point I made previously, sometimes you go into that knowing that because of the ties, because of the emotional ties, because of what that facility means to the campus, to the to the history, sometimes it is a case of, yeah, it's going to cost us another 20, 25% to renovate this, but that's just the right thing to do. There is no other way because if it is a beautiful historic building, which there are a lot of, there are a lot of nice modern buildings, but you can't beat an adaptive reuse of a traditional college campus building. Can you think of any buildings in your work or just that you know of that were preserved and renovated with really great success? Oof. Again, going back to housing, we're seeing a lot of great adaptive reuse, a lot of derelict buildings. There are some going on now all around the state, really. There's, there's a lot more developers out there that really have this niche and passion about not building new, but taking historic buildings or old buildings and change them into something new. We just had the one downtown with the General Sentinel building that just got an adaptive reuse into apartments. Now, it's a great stable building in you know the community. If that had been ripped down and started again, it would have been a real shame. And then you also look at the environmental aspect of that. It it has a, a greater impact on the environment if you were to raise that building and then build new again because you're building a new shell and core. Tell me about the biggest surprises you've encountered when you went in for a big remodel or a teardown. What's the thing that just wow? I <laughs> can't believe that happened. And wow, that comes with a big fat price take? There's been a lot. I can't really, th- I'm trying to think of anything uh, specific, but, you know, particularly when building owners don't update their plans, you know, there may have been a renovation that happened 30 years ago that wasn't documented and you tear down a wall and it's like, oh, didn't realize there was another wall behind that. So it's, there can be a, a lot of issues like that. But generally when you go down the road of either a renovation or or a tear down, at the beginning, when you get engaged with a client, the client has some idea you know from the general era of the building and also what upgrades have happened you know through the different years if you've got a 1950s building that was renovated in the 70s again in the 80s again in the 2000s you have a pretty good idea about what has been taken care of or what they might have just plastered over the cracks with but then you do that initial due diligence before you start tearing walls down so you can put realistic budgets and schedules together so you can give the client a a pretty good idea about what this cost is going to be before it's too late 
All right. As we're wrapping up here, John, tell me your best advice for those looking to build or renovate. What's your best advice, particularly for college leaders, could be related to building, but it, of course, doesn't have to be either. Yeah, I think it's going back to kind of understanding what your current assets are. Uh, we're seeing a, a big trend now towards uh, there's a lot of master plans going on, whether it be on college campuses, uh, education campuses as a whole, even in healthcare, looking to see what we can do to improve, you know, our mission, et cetera, et cetera. But they're also now starting to look back to say, before we do this, before we do a, a new building, a tear down, or even an addition, we should really look like what our assets currently are. And there's two reasons for that, because, you know, first of all, if I'm doing a capital campaign or if I have, you know, several hundred millions of dollars to pump into a new building, do I really have a deferred maintenance over here? That really needs to get looked at first, that maybe I need another 50 million or another 100 million to take care of. But also, you know, has some of my existing assets have the useful lives gone in them where they're now becoming uh, liabilities, where before I go and build that new building, whatever it's going to be, I really need to take care of my assets over here because otherwise you're just kicking that can down the road to the next president or, you know, to the next people that that are going to have to take care of that. And so that, that would be the advice I would give is you really need to look at your current assets before you start embarking on new construction. Grand advice. All right, John, thank you so much. And I'm sure some listeners will want to reach out to you and learn more about the Concord Group and what you can do. I'll be sure to include your website and your LinkedIn in our show notes. Thank you again. Thank you, Sarah. It's been a pleasure. To support the cause of the affordable college experience, visit us at highlevelleadership.com. Read our blog and join our email list to get connected. Follow us and leave a positive review on your favorite podcast app. Let's get down to college business.